It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast my friend, best-selling author, State Department alum, Teach for America alum, uh, author of Industries of the Future, and his new book, The Raging 20s, Professor Alec Ross. Alec. It's great to be here. It's great to be here, Andrew. <laughs> well, it's good to see you, Alec. Last time I saw you, you were running for governor of Maryland, which is something that I can relate to. Not that I've run for governor of Maryland. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I ran and, you know, look, I'm speaking to you from Bologna, Italy. Um, and it's not because I'm the governor of Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling, you know, um, I, I, I've had the, I've lost a race or two in my time. Um, but it, it's one of the things that sets you apart is that there are a lot of people that have uh, talked about the issues and problems, but you've served in a much more direct mode than just about anyone where you started your career as a teacher in Baltimore, right? That's right. Yeah, no, Booker T. Washington Middle School taught sixth graders. So, and, and you went from there uh, eventually to the State Department where you saw the world and represented the United States for a number of years under the Obama administration. Yeah, it was sort of a crazy path. You know, I was teaching in inner city Baltimore and this was this was a, a legitimately like really, really rough neighborhood. Um, you know, I grew up in coal country in West Virginia and coming out of college, I wanted to, I wanted to learn about urban America, I guess a little bit. I went to Northwestern, but joined Teach for America and had a great time in my classroom. But this was back in the mid nineties. And like everybody else, I was witnessing the rise of the internet and, you know, the transition of the economy from being dominantly industrial based into, into increasingly technology rich and knowledge based. It's like, my kids have got to learn, my students have got to learn how to use technology if they're going to get good jobs in the future. So between teaching and going into the Obama administration, I, st I started a nonprofit um, that actually worked in the state Senate district where Barack Obama was a state senator on the south side of Chicago. So that's how I got to know him. And when he decided to run for president, I was like this technology guy, this techie entrepreneur guy he knew. And so he recruited me first to help him run for the United States Senate. And then I ran tech policy for his presidential campaign. And that's sort of what brought me into his orbit, working for him for six years, four of which I worked for Hillary Clinton at the State Department. So when you first met Barack Obama, you were like, wow, this guy's going places. Uh, is that what the experience was? It was. You know, State Senate, it's funny because I had a colleague um, who had absolutely no interest in meeting. It's like a state senator, south side of Chicago. He's like, oh my God, you know, I have no interest in meeting this guy, Alec Hugo. Um, and, I met, and I met him and I did see, you know, Obama is not a perfect human being. None of us are. But I did see this sort of otherness. I saw what was special in him. And I was kind of like, Jesus, the dude's a state senator. And he had just come off of getting his butt kicked running for Congress. I mean, he'd gotten, he'd gotten whooped running for Congress against a, a knucklehead. And, but I was still like, there's something special here. Got crushed running for Congress. He'll, he'll be a real good state senator. Maybe he'll do something beyond that. And the rest is history. Uh, and, and am I right that you're, you met your wife while you were uh, a teacher or that, um, that she also was in the classroom? Is that right? So yeah, I'm totally inappropriate, deeply inappropriate. She was the teacher across the hall. And we taught the same students. I was teaching social studies and reading, and she was and she was teaching a math. And we taught the same students. We tried to keep it 
We tried to keep it on the down low. This isn't appropriate because neither of you was supervising the other. This is just straight up colleague romance, right? I mean, that's legit. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 think, I, I like to think of it that way. And you know what? She's still in the classroom. So she is, she's in teaching in Baltimore's public schools, literally as you and I speak here, Andrew. She's, she's teaching, she's teaching in, in these rough schools in Baltimore and doing a great job of it. Oh, one of the passages in your new book, The Raging Twenties, that really hit me was you are uh, harsh towards teachers' unions and their impact from your direct experience as a teacher, where you were mm -hmm. like, hey, I was excited to join the union. I'm like a big labor person. Uh, but then in practice, like I saw that they weren't really helping my kids get better results. They seemed to be looking out for teachers that were fouling up. <laughs> I mean, there's it, it, actually some pretty bad, I mean, it's pretty rough examples of this. I'm going to be honest. You know, a lot of, you know, sort of the cool kids, you know, sort of the hipster lefties will say, oh, you know, we have to sort of deify our unions, you know, for lots of different reasons. But having been a part of the teachers union in Baltimore, I saw them, at, I saw a teachers union sort of at its most malignant, you know, so, you know, they were not doing anything necessarily to help teachers teach their students. And in fact, teachers who had no business being in the classroom were those who they defended. You know, you have sex with a 14-year-old girl, teachers union is there to support you. You've got a problem with heroin addiction that you brought into the school with you, teachers union is there to make sure you stay in the classroom. Um, you know, somebody wants, a principal wants to set up a voluntary program that, you know, would have teachers in the school for 20 more minutes. Uh, of the school day and the teachers union would fight violently against that. So I'm not anti-union. I'm actually incredibly pro-union and pro-worker, but I do believe that a lot of America's unions, including the vast majority of our teachers unions, frankly, a lot of our public sector unions do their, do the people who are working with and for them a disservice and they make our communities worse off. So I think we need sort of a 2020, we need in the same way in which we can sort of have startups and innovate in the technology world, so too do I think we need to get back to having startups and innovating back in the world of unionization and workers' movements. Well, it's tough to argue with your perspective, given that you spent years in the classroom and so you saw it uh, up close. And certainly when I, I ran for mayor, I had my issues with the teachers' unions. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and, and Andrew, I did see the opposite though. Like I worked, so when I was in West Virginia, I was growing up in West Virginia, I worked on a beer truck and um, the guys who drove the trucks were Teamsters. And those dudes were remarkable. Like the, the trucks would roll out of the warehouse at six o'clock in the morning. There would be 13 hour days. These guys were like the strongest human beings on planet. They worked like dogs and they earned a good wage. And, you know, people would literally go through a program where they would sort of apprentice for years so that they could become Teamsters. And being a Teamster, driving these beer trucks in West Virginia, held esteem. You could feed your family. You could go on vacation. You could get a new speedboat every five years or so. And so I've seen the good of unions, and I've seen the bad of unions. Well, they've been a path of the middle class for a, a lot of people. But I'm friends with Andy Stern, who used to run the SEIU. Mm -hmm. And the thing that it, that is inarguable that you also point out in your book is that union membership has been on the decline for years and years and decades and decades. And so it, it's difficult then to try and turn back the clock and say, hey, you're going to go from whatever it is, 12% of workers to 40% uh, of workers again. 
I mean, there, there was a heyday when it was 40% of workers, and then it, it's declined ever since. Uh, and what, one of the frustrations I'd have is that we're not really clear-eyed about the conversations we're having around a lot of these issues. And I think your book does a great job of laying out the case for what the reality is in a lot of these contexts. And it's always a little bit more nuanced and textured, you know, like unions do some great things and unions uh, are problematic. Uh, but one thing I would say is that unions can't be your primary solution <laughs> if, it's, if it's gone from, you know, 40 or 50% of the workforce to uh, 10 to 12. No, that's exactly right. And look, we can't click our heels together like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz and say there's no time like 1955. Like, it's just, it's it's not happening. Um, what's weird, what's interesting, I don't know if it's weird, but I find it interesting, is unions and things that are sort of like unions, work councils, actually work pretty darn well in other parts of the world. So I sit, for example, I sit on the board of directors of a publicly traded Swiss company, and we have a work council, uh, which functions sort of like a union. And at the beginning of COVID, we were figuring out what the implication of on the business was going to be. And, you know, before you fire people with a work council in Switzerland, you engage the workers and you have sort of an open, transparent discussion with them. And, you know, we said, you know, gee, in order for us to make it, we may, may need to fire, you know, X number of, of employees. And what they came back to us was, well, how about we fire nobody, but everybody, including, by the way, you guys, the board members and the senior executives, take a pay cut of Y percent that we calculated, and we'll ride this out together. And you know what? It worked. Uh, you know, we it was it was cooperative. It was collegial. Nobody got fired. We all took a financial haircut for a little while. And we came out and came out on the other end together and stronger. And I see I see the in Central and Northern Europe, I see lots of really positive models uh, for how labor and capital can work together. And sometimes and sometimes they have seats on the board. So, you know, a lot yeah, of the time... The German model, the, the yeah. German companies have uh, shop workers on, on the board. And it changes, it, it changes the discussion at the board. So it becomes less about just maximizing the last penny of shareholder value, the last penny in the stock price, but it also becomes how do you help a broader set of stakeholders within the company? Yeah, that, I've seen that work wonders because I've been in those boardrooms. Uh, I've seen on the nonprofit level, if you have someone who's like, like in the uh, community that the nonprofit serving, raising a hand, being like, well, this is actually what we care about. And then mm -hmm. you can't argue with that because you're like, <laughs> then, uh, it's also true. I think at some universities, they have student trustees in these meetings. You know, I just I believe in ownership and incentives. So, you know, one of the things that's related to this that I do, I am a big believer in. And Silicon Valley has done this well, and I would love to see it in more parts of the economy, is more employer ownership and more employee ownership. Um, you know, I do believe that we are, you know, what's rooted in our DNA in part is we are motivated by the incentives placed in front of us. And it's part of why communism and socialism failed is because they tried, they created a work with too few incentives to work better, to produce a more beautiful product, to create more delight. Uh, in society. So I do believe in incentives. And one of the greatest incentives is, is, you know, being a sort of owner operator or having a seat at the board table, you are part of a company's governance.
This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So after years in the State Department seeing the world, you wrote this enormous book, Industries of the Future, uh, based upon your global survey, essentially, of what's mm-hmm. going on. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And that, that book was translated into how many languages? I think 24, 24 languages. Yeah, it was a mega hit, which did you expect? <laughs> I don't know. Look, I mean, it would have been awfully, I mean, it's my first book. I had no, I, I had no idea what to expect. I mean, I, I think, and what I hope I did with this guy as well, what I hope I did with the Raging 2020s as well, is take this stuff that's incredibly complicated, this sort of geeky and make it more broadly accessible in a way that also entertains. Um, and, and with the industries of the future, I mean, it ended up selling, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of copies in part, because I think a broader, a, a larger number of people want to understand the things that are shaping our future, but don't, but they aren't engineers and they don't want to, they don't want to hear, they don't necessarily want to understand things at the engineering level. It's the same with, with this book, The Raging 2020s, the stuff that you and I discuss, Andrew, I think people want to understand the forces that are shaping our communities, but don't necessarily want to sit in a graduate class on political theory, right? And, and I wish there were more books that were more broadly accessible. So that's why I write what I do. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm trying to trace your steps a little bit so people have a sense of your progression and pers- perspective, because I find it fascinating, too. I mean, yeah. you've had one of the most interesting careers of... Uh, of anyone I know. Um, so you come out with this mega hit book. Uh, what year was that? That was in 2016. So not that long ago. Uh, and then uh, there, there is this massive demand for your time at this point, because everyone's like, oh, we got to get the guy who wrote this book in here to tell <laughs> us about how to, how to develop our economy, um, yep. uh, I, I expect. Uh, so you went globetrotting again, I'm sure, for at least, uh, at least that, that's what people wanted you to do. Um, but then you decided to run for governor of Maryland, and that's a deeply personal decision. You know, you know, you have a family uh, and the rest of it. Uh, you know, your your wife's teaching in the, the schools. What was that decision like? You know, it's it's interesting. It was motivated in substantial part by the t- by the time I had spent on the road. So, you know, I write this book in February two thousand eighteen. Much of the next uh, in two thousand sixteen, much of the next year and a half 
is flying to like Dubai, then Hong Kong, then Zurich, you know, all of these sort of global centers of power and capital and seeing how, and, you know, look, the people who would hire me to come out would be, you know, heads of investment banks or heads of state or these people. And I paid really close attention. Uh, trying to remember, I only had one mouth, but two ears. Tried to pay really close attention to what was going on in the global economy and, you know, be a fly in the wall for all these discussions around the world. And I was sort of terrified, bluntly. You know? <laughs> I had a similar experience uh, domestically, but proceed. No, it's look, it's a world of heads I win, tails you lose. I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable. And I gotta, I'm just going to be completely uncensored with you, Andrew. I've experienced it myself. Once you get to a certain level of wealth, and I'm not like super rich, but once I got into the 1%, um, just the way capital appreciates, it basically guarantees, when you get to a certain point, it guarantees that you are a financial winner. Um, unless you do something really self-destructive. And so I saw these guys, you know, these hedge fund managers and these investment bankers and people working in real estate. And there were, li there was literally no consequence for their mistakes. You know, if they were building a tower in Dubai and it went bust, you know, the LLC they incorporated to build that tower, you know, went away and they went on to the next tower in Abu Dhabi. Uh, with a hedge fund, say they have a really bad year. Well, they had a really bad year, but you earn 2% against the $4 billion you have on, under assets under management. And simultaneous to this, I'm still a public school kid from West Virginia. So here I am, you know, I spent, you know, six years working for Obama, traveled over four, 40 countries, you know, all over the world, then spend this period sort of globe trotting for the industries of the future. And what it did is it, it's, it radicalized me a little bit. Um, or a lot, Recog <laughs> right? recognizing that our capitalism was totally rigged and that it was, it was a winner-takes-all model and the winners were concentrated within this sort of one to two to maybe 3% of society. And, and you hung out with enough of the winners to be like, wow, these people are not all awesome. <laughs> no. You know, and it's, 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 look, that's true. So this is, you know, I, I, I do believe that the very concept of merit is, um, is worth d discussing. You know, I do, I've come to sort of believe that talent is universally distributed, but opportunity is not. Talent is everywhere. Opportunity is not. And I'm certain that the kids that I went to school with in the public, in the public school in West Virginia were an equal in talent to a lot of those folks who I would see in Singapore or Dubai or Geneva. They were just a completely different set of circumstances, or they had a different last name and a rich daddy. And so this contributed to the radicalization. Like you see, they aren't awesome. And in many cases, they aren't even that smart. They're just in a heads I win. You don't have to be very smart when it's heads I win, tails you lose. Like you're going to win every time. Well, this is one of the quotes I, I took from your book, talking about the meritocracy. The parallel cultural politics of meritocracy that equates economic success with moral worth and social esteem is a dangerous force in politics because it means that when inequality rises, not only people do people get poorer, they also get angrier. <laughs> and I think that a lot of people can relate to that right now, where uh, the myth of the meritocracy is being progressively shattered in multiple ways. Uh, I think the pandemic had a lot to do with it, where uh, people were cut off from 
sources of income and it had nothing to do with merit. Uh, it just had to do with uh, what kind of job you had. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, I, I've, I'm sorry to keep coming back from what to West Virginia, but for me, it's just, it's really instructive. You know, when I was growing up in the 1970s and 1980s, it was sort of the center of sort of union Democrats. I mean, Michael Dukakis won West Virginia. I think he won like Massachusetts, West Virginia, and maybe one other state or something like that. Um, but it went from the politics of sort of union Democrats to the politics of really, really loving Donald Trump um, and, you know, all of the mini Trumps that are out there and with a lot of the sort of associated anger. And I've, I have come to believe that a lot of that anger comes from as people struggle financially and as their place, their standing in the world decreases, um, as we define success differently, it, it's, it sets people off on, a, on a, what can be a really scary uh, emotional and intellectual road. So you clearly have deep roots in West Virginia. Do you still have family there? Do you get back there? I do. My parents are there. I've got I've got aunts and uncles. Uh, so yeah, I know. You know, I was I was back there last month. In fact, well, for, for me, I like we. I had a uh, an experience um, that I I think harkens to yours, where uh, my parents immigrated to this country from Taiwan. They met as graduate students at Berkeley. Uh, mm-hmm. I was born in Schenectady, New York. My dad worked for GE. Um, so if you're the first generation born in this country, uh, growing up in uh, in Schenectady and then um, the suburbs of New York City, uh, you just grow up watching the same TV you did because I think we're contemporaries and there, there's kind of mm-hmm. like a monoculture and we're all sort of in it together. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and you kind of have a sense of perspective. And, and then in my case, you know, uh, when I was running Venture for America, uh, I ran in high-level circles of government and philanthropy and entrepreneurship and tech, and, and hang out with these folks. I was dismayed, <laughs> uh, where, slash radicalized. Where I was like, okay, like th- this stuff's not going to do it at all. Uh, well, like when, when you're in the room with the people who are supposed to be running things or managing things or fixing things, and you see that they don't actually have any interest in fixing <laughs> most of the things that you see around you. Uh, and your globe trotting for me, it was crisscrossing uh, Michigan, Ohio, Alabama, Louisiana, Missouri, like all these states I'd never spent any time in growing up in the East Coast. Um, and so after I saw these environments, I was, I, and then uh, this was before Trump won. Um, Trump winning was a giant red flag for me, as it, it sounds like it was for you. And that was around this time when you're seeing the world. So you come back and decide to, to run for governor because you think that, well, the problems are getting worse and maybe I can help. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, I just and also, Andrew, I, fe- I feel like we needed people from our generation to step forward a little bit. And, you know, I, I knew going in uh, running for governor would be a long shot. But, you know, I'm one of those guys who, you know, says, you know, we, we need to take risks every now and that, you know, if I regret anything, it's the chances, it's the things I didn't try to do rather than mistakes I made when I did do it. And so I sort of, you know, I, I, I followed my own gospel a little bit and got into a race that, you know, that I probably wasn't going to win and, and it ended up that I didn't win, but I'm glad in the end that I did run because the message got out there. It helped create a little bit of a movement. 
And, uh, you know, look, we can't leave politics to the politicians. You know, we have to, we have to force ourselves in there. And, and honestly, I think about Barack Obama. You know, again, when I met Barack Obama, he had just gotten his, he had just gotten his butt kicked running for Congress. He had sort of made a deal with Michelle that he would run, he would get one more run. And if he didn't, and if he didn't win, then he would take that corporate lawyer job or you know, the foundation job or something like that. And lo and behold, he, he shoots up. Everybody thought he was insane, insane. There were all these interventions, you know, telling him that, you know, having gotten his butt kicked running for Congress, he had no business running for the Senate. And his audacity was rewarded. So I do think, I, we, I think we have to be audacious every now and then. You know, I think about Theodore Roosevelt, who said, you talked about staying out of the gray twilight. He said, it's far better to, make, to dare mighty deeds, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they dwell in a gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. And so, Andrew, one thing I'd like to think that you and I have in common is that we'd like to suffer much or enjoy much rather than be in sort of the gray twilight. I think it's that we both married well. I like we have partners yeah. who are willing to put up with our, our madcap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's, a that's a prerequisite. It doesn't work without that. It doesn't work um, without that. Well, so I, I understand both the joys and uh, the trials of running a campaign. It takes a lot out of you. I don't think most people appreciate just how much it takes out of you. Uh, and I, I wish that people took it more to heart because it's easy to say like, oh, this person, uh, you know, like uh, they, they, uh, they lost or, you know, like uh, I didn't like this about their campaign. It's like if, if there's someone and there's a, a journalist in New York um, who had run for office and had a completely different perspective as a result. And so he was like, hey, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So that, that was something I appreciated about him. Crystal Ball is another journalist who's run for office. Like if you've run for office, it's very, very uh, personal. Mm -hmm. um, it can't help but be personal. And this is something that I discovered running for president um, was I, I likened it to entrepreneurship because you and I have both started organizations. And so you're like, yeah, this will be like that. Um, but when you start an organization, uh, you're not the product That's in the right. same way that it, it is when you run for office. And when you are the product, then you have to be on uh, in a different way uh, than even an entrepreneur would have to be. No, it's the personalization of the experience. The, the degree to which it's a deeply personal experience is something I could not have understood without running. You know, I'd been involved in campaigns before. I ran tech policy for Obama's first presidential campaign. Um. There's nothing to analogy. There's no part of being a sta staff in a campaign that can help people understand sort of the mental space of being the candidate. Because and so much of what's being judged too that was tough for me is not the quality of the policy or the ideas, but it's all of this sort of deeply personal stuff. It's like, oh, you know, I don't like his hair or why, you know, gosh, he's, he's too short to be a governor or, you know, it's all of these really, you know, funny things about somebody's laugh or whatever it is, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, and you're judged like, you're judged like a middle, like middle schoolers are judged in many respects. It's like going back to being 13 and, and, and like, 14 years old. What's yep. going on? I'm a serious adult. <laughs> 
But you're judged like you're 13 or 14 years old. And as you said, you're the product. And you can't really back off. You can't really ease back at all. Like, you know, when you walk into a room, you're, you're essentially selling yourself. You're trying to convey why you as a person are a solution to some of the problems of the, that are being articulated by the people in the room. It's, it, it is a, it's a disorienting experience. And the thing that worries me a little, Andrew, and I'd be curious to know what you think about this. You've run a couple times. I really hope you run for something again. But it seems to me like when you do this, when people do this every two years or every four years forever, um, it does cre- seem to create this sort of psychosis. Like it does create yeah. this. I mean, imagine doing this 10 or 15 times. Like, how do you not become just a complete egomaniac? It's, it's sort of strange. I don't know. Yeah, it'll twist you. I actually write a chapter about this in my upcoming book that I'll send your way. Um, Thank you. Uh, called Power Screws with, the, with Your Mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's not even so much power because it's not like you have that much power as a candidate, but, uh, but just always being in the spotlight, always being on. Uh, and then there are people around you that theoretically work for you, but they're telling you where to go and what to do and what to say a lot of the time. And so you become something of an automaton uh, and your genuine empathy erodes. And there are studies that indicate this. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think you're, you're right that our political class tend to be missing a certain something over time <laughs> because of the process. And I think the process has gotten worse of late because of uh, social media and the nature of uh, the news cycles. I think you're right. I mean, and it's interesting too, like if you just think about our politicians for a second, Today, you know, when I was growing up, when we were growing up, the most media a politician would get would be whatever was in the daily newspaper or on like the local news station. Um, Now with social media, they're sort of on all the time. Uh, And it's created this sort of strange panopticon um, with the ego at the center of it. And And that's why I think we see more sort of crazy politicians too. Like we see people who love that, you know, it's like Sarah Palin, like there are now 30 Sarah Palins in in Congress um, where she was very distinct 10 years ago because social media, I think in part, well, I'm not anti-social media by any any stretch. I do think that the combination of money and politics with the amplification from social media and other such things bring, brings in and helps enable um, some strange personalities. It's very dark, Alec. I mean, you're you're a very high character human. I've known you for years. Uh, and you're exactly the sort of person that we would need to have in very high office that uh, right now our system's not necessarily going to embrace. Uh, you know, it's just, and you and I might know some other people like us, though, Many of them are um, too wise to run for office. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Which is part of the problem where you're yes. like, well, you kind of need to do it. But then they look at it and be like, hey, I, I see the bizarreness, the ringer, the unfairness, like the, the rest of it. Um, and, you know, sometimes their family's not into it. Like there, there are a lot of variables. Um, but you and I would be like, yeah, do it. <laughs> do it. Yes, we would. 
Look, and also, it's also true, Andrew, only optimists change the world. So yeah, like we talk about this, like it could make you want to curl into the fetal position. But only optimists change the world. And so I, I do, you know, the political, it's really hard to break in politically right now for, or for people with new ideas, for people who aren't part of a sort of, who aren't part of sort of the good old boys network or good old gals network to break in. But I am choosing to be optimistic and, and I believe in the power of books. Like I believe that this book of yours that's coming out at the beginning of October can really move a lot of people. You know, I, the oh, idea. You. I haven't even seen, seen it yet, but thank you no, for saying no, so. No, ideas do move the world. I mean, you mentioned the industries of the future in my last book. I mean, there were five different presidents or prime ministers who recommended that book to their people and, you know, like publicly. Um, from literally from the president of Pakistan to Benjamin Netanyahu. And let me tell you, there are no two people who are more different than those two. And so I am choosing, while I'm not running for office now, the reason why I'm writing is because I do believe that books matter, that ideas matter. Um, And it's one way to sort of shape the world in some modest way. Well, you are an activist at heart, and your new book, uh, The Raging, I'm calling it The Raging 20s, but I guess you called it The Raging 2020s, is that correct? Yeah, but you can call it The Raging 20s. <laughs> All right. So, so your new book makes a very clear case that uh, what we believed was our social contract has uh, degraded and deteriorated on multiple fronts, and you point to a few of the holes in it uh, with... The, the first one being the, the distortions of shareholder capitalism, where companies used to care about something other than just their share price. But then a number of years ago, uh, Harvard Business School said, nope, just the share price. <laughs> and then a lot of things have kind of uh, come with that. And right now they're seeing how bad it is and saying, we should probably go back to something broader um, with stakeholder capitalism being the, uh, the term. Um, and I've been in conferences where Jamie Dimon and other people have made the case for uh, stakeholder capitalism, um, where, where they see the inequalities are, are reaching epic proportions. Uh, so you, you go into that case in detail, which I agree with. Um, and you, you say that companies do need to embrace broader notions of who they're responsible to. Yeah, I mean, look, the American economy boomed, boomed. For decades um, after World War II, when we really modeled a, a, what, what we now call stakeholder capitalism. And then what happened really in the 80s, um, it, re- you know, it really, really accelerated during the 80s. It then became sort of intellectual doctrine uh, in the 1990s. Shareholder capitalism is really what has taken most of America's workers and put them in such a position of weakness relative to where they were 30 years ago. And it's interesting, uh, you know, decades ago, if a company were were in a little bit of trouble, um, it wouldn't immediately fire workers because it viewed itself as having a commitment to its workers, sometimes a multi-generational commitment to its workers. And this was especially true when, you know, look, when you were in Schenectady and I was in Charleston, West Virginia, Every medium-sized city or larger in America had a headquarters. 
then what happened with shareholder capitalism, what shareholder capitalism basically compelled, it said is, hey, you need to become tax optimized. You know, if Iowa or West Virginia or New York State or Ohio or Michigan are not the optimal tax locations for your company, then you are compelled to move it to Texas or move it to Florida or move it to Delaware. And as these companies moved, part of what happened was the children of the, the children of the CEO that may have used to go to school with the children of the middle manager, that was no longer the case. The companies that would have, you know, been in that town in Iowa or that town in Michigan or wherever that would have supported the United Way and the Little League and the local symphony. Once they moved to Delaware, once they moved to some tax-optimized location, that didn't happen anymore. So part of what we're seeing, and you can see this, if you sort of look at a map, actually, of where Donald Trump has done well, a lot uh, where Donald Trump did well electorally, a lot of it maps to the places where the shift from stakeholder to shareholder capitalism was most brutal. And it's not a coincidence, for example, that in agricultural America, um, that's where a lot of the the blood gets up the most, where the most anger is. And in, and in my book, The Raging 2020s, a lot of what I write about is agricultural and rural America and what the effects of corporatization have been there. It's, it's, it's really malignant. It, it is. You've seen an emptying out of a lot of uh, the Midwest in, in various ways, and those areas have gone red. Uh, mm -hmm. Ohio used to be the quintessential swing state. Obama won it. I want to say he won it twice. Um, and it went to Trump by eight points, I think also twice. <laughs> and, and so, uh, and I, you know, I have friends from Ohio and I would thought of Ohio as, uh, well, they thought of Ohio as very, very purple. It's, it's mm -hmm. been difficult for them to see it swing the, the this direction. Um, you also, um, talk about, and this was really, really compelling to me. You, you talk about how there's been a brain drain out of public service and you saw it in your time in government where a lot of the ultra talented people you worked with uh, went to tech companies, uh, went to Silicon Valley. Uh, and that's going to be very difficult to undo uh, since industry tends to be, and you, you make a case too, that was wild where you say, look, it's more efficient, it pays more, and you might even have more power in the power. private sector. <laughs> I was like, whoa, that's a strong statement. No, it's nuts. Look, I mean, what happens is, you know, you go to college, you come out of college and you're some earnest young person who wants to change the world and you go to work for government. Then this thing happens, you know, after a number of years, when you get to about age 30, where you realize that you can literally triple, not 3%, not 30%, but 300% what you earn. Uh, you massively diminish the number of hours you work. You have, you're working with better computers and a lot more efficiently. And as I, as I said, Andrew, you can actually have more power um, because with the brain drain out of government, people in government are increasingly relying on those outside experts to drive what happens inside government. And so it, I think the average number of hours worked by a House of Representatives staffer is over 80 hours a week. And they leave on average by their 31st birthday. So what that means a lot of the time is that the people who put in their time and then continue to work 
uh, outside of government retain or maybe even increase the amount of power they had driving what's actually going on inside government. It's a fascinating dynamic. Yeah, I had a friend uh, I grew up with who worked on Capitol Hill, and he said going in, I'm never going to be a lobbyist. And then fast forward X years later, he, he is a lobbyist. <laughs> and and the, the calculus was not dissimilar to what you just described, which is his lifestyle is better, his pay is better, he uh, does as uh, impactful work uh, on the outside. But the, the, the thing that struck me is that you've worked for the government and, you know, if you include teaching in the public sector for um, a decade or more, uh, and you characterize the weakness of the state in, the, in a particular way, and the talent is part of it. Um, I agree with this analysis, by the way. Mm. A- and th- there's something where our government has become this kind of behind the curve, uh, flopping bureaucracy, uh, and we're demanding more and more of it and getting more and more frustrated. Uh, and the conversations around what the government can do are becoming more and more incoherent. <laughs> and and there are all of these fears around overreaching of the state um, where I'm concerned more about our ability to actually address things like climate change or, or whatever like the crisis of the day is, or the, the crisis I was running on, which was um, the automation of labor and uh, a labor market that's going to kick more and more people to the curb, which we're seeing in different forms right now. Uh, and this is one thing I wanted to have a head to head with you or like a heart to heart is that you've been part of public service. You ran for governor. Yep. Um, and there, there's part of me that, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure what the, the scope of the governor's powers are in Maryland. Um, did you ever fear that uh, that you get the office and aren't able to do a lot of the things that, <laughs> that you wanted to do. Like that, that, this to me is one of the, the great concerns because I've, I've run a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. I ran for, for president because I saw the limits of what you can do in the nonprofit space. And, and one, one of the issues that you and I have is that we know a lot of private sector actors. And like, I have a very deep appreciation for uh, the power of the private sector uh, the private sector is going to try and solve certain problems, not others. It doesn't care about certain problems that you're not going to make many money off of. <laughs> so, so then we're like, okay, let's try and solve these non-market problems. Who are we going to turn to? The government. And then the, the government may or may not be able to deliver. Uh, it's one reason why I ran on something I thought the government could deliver, which is cash. Because <laughs> yes. that's, that's, that's something. No, there was, there was a, a, a commentator who said our government is bad at many, many things, but it's excellent at sending large numbers of checks promptly <laughs> every every month. Uh, so uh, yeah, so I wanted to unpack your analysis of the, the weaknesses of the musculature of the state. Yeah, so look, I think there are three things that are holding us back. One we talked about is brain drain. You know, if you are a highly talented person, there are all of these incentives for you to leave government. And you know, in the book, I give the example of how that's being combated, for example, in Singapore, where they pay their career civil service really well. Um, you know, analogous to their private sector peers. So one is is brain drain, two is kludgeocracy, and three is vetocracy. So what are they? Kludgeocracy is the government has become so complicated um, and so ungovernable that, you know, kludge, you know, we basically are putting what are analogous to like software patches uh, into all of our public policy solutions. Like the, the infrastructure bill that's in front of Congress right now 
it is physically impossible to read that. It is something like two feet, three feet tall in terms of the amount of paper that's there. I mean, that is that is unmanageable. And then vitocracy, which is obvious, which you've discussed a lot, which you've discussed a lot before, which is just given the given the degree to which the United States is a divided country, it makes it very hard to achieve any sort of compromise. What I will say, so I think that those are the three things holding government back, but I will say this based on my time in government, especially in the executive branch. And there's a reason why I ran for governor and not for Congress. Uh, I, I will never, I will say definitively right here, I will never run for a legislative branch office. Never. Um, because those executive branch jobs actually really do have a lot of power. You can do a lot. You know, so for four years, I worked at the State Department. And whether it was getting dissidents out of jail, whether it was, you know, putting programs in place in the East Congo to help uh, prevent acts of sexual violence by rogue militias, whether it was putting an internet freedom agenda in place, you actually can have a lot of power so long as you are willing to exercise power. And so I went into it like an entrepreneur. I went into it sort of both guns blazing. And honestly, it was because I had protection from the president and then from Hillary Clinton, who was the secretary of state. Without the protection from on high, I probably couldn't have gotten away with working with such a high risk profile, but they protected me. And therefore I w was able to get a lot done. But my... Mine may very well have been the exception that proves the rule. Yeah, you sound exceptionally uh, impactful. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I don't know. I was a little crazy, and some of it worked, and some I of like it. it. You know, I think you have to bring a little punk rock sometimes. You know, the U.S. government needs a little punk rock right now. Well, the, you know, one of, one of the issues is that uh, there's a lot of frustration, and then it's getting manifest in Trump uh, mm -hmm. and. What, what you need is something like what you offered or what I like to think I offered, which is like, look, like I'm going to bring some new energy, um, mm -hmm. but I'm not malignant. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like I'm, like yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a non, uh, I'm a non like lunatic. <laughs> you're, do, you're, do, you're doing this for the right reasons. You're not doing this because you want to see somebody's head on a stick. No, it's true. Well, and part of the issue politically right now is that negativity sells, um, though, though it's heartening to hear that you're still encouraged by the capacities uh, of the government if the government could get some of these things cleared up. Um, that, that's more optimism than, than a lot of people have. There's another part of the book that, that I found very edifying because I did not know about it to this extent, which is the, the craziness of tax havens and transfer pricing. <laughs> it's like the, the game of Monty that uh, tech companies and multinationals play where they're, they're not paying meaningful tax. No, it's a look. This is I think it, this is an incredibly boring topic. And it's incredibly important. I mean, I do think that the issue of global tax is sort of a skeleton key for understanding why we live in a heads I win, tails you lose world. Um, the, when, I mean, there have been years where it, is where it is literally true that FedEx, the company, paid less in federal taxes than one of their delivery drivers. And a barista at Starbucks 
paid less in taxes than Starbucks Corp. And for these tech companies with transfer pricing, like they, they literally will create these shell companies where like Google Netherlands uh, will sell its intellectual property to Google of the Canary Islands and send it through and basically say that the transfer of that $30 billion uh, is a cost. And so what I do in the, the raging 2020s, I, my, my mind was so blown by this. I wanted to take a simple transaction, a belt. Uh, I literally, somebody clicks on a Google ad for a belt and I traced the transaction for what happens with every cent when, what happens when somebody buys a belt after clicking a Google ad. And I had more economists, accountants, and lawyers check every last cent in this story I told about Google and its belt so that when Google's lawyers, you know, try to block the sale of the book, um, they won't have a leg to stand on. But I do think that the thing that is most complicated, but in many respects, most important for us to solve is this issue of global tax. And again, I'll just make this really personal for a second. Um, last year, I think I paid less as a percentage of my household income than the 25-year-old research assistant who worked for me on this book. And it's because so much of what I made was a function of increased capital as opposed to like a paycheck. It should be the exact opposite. Um, the wealthier you are, the less taxes you pay as a total percentage. Because, because you know, the Jeff Bezos is the world are not growing wealthy because every two weeks they're getting a direct deposit into their bank account, you know, because of their salary at Amazon. It's a function of increased capital. And if you are the least bit creative, you can legally, and all of this is legal, you can legally avoid paying just about any taxes. It's fairly remarkable. Yeah, so much of our society now operates on this idea that government's going to be three steps behind uh, industry in, in terms of being able to capture some of this value. Uh, and so, you know, when you talk about people paying their fair share, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to consider a lot of relatively dramatic changes on this. I was proposing mm -hmm. a value-added tax, which a lot of European countries have to, to try and get it at the point of sale. Uh, one of the many things I enjoyed about your book was your reference to some of the models in other countries that you think we could be emulating. Um, a lot of those countries are more homogeneous than the United States, which you note. Uh, and so that that's one of the challenges uh, is can we implement some of those types of safety nets or uh, other types of programs in a diverse society. Uh, but I enjoyed the fact that you were calling out things that work in other countries because I thought it was immensely constructive. What are the examples you feel most strongly about from other parts of the world? Well, uh, one example I'll give is from is from the Nordic countries. Um, the Nordic countries are actually incredibly entrepreneurial. They allow a lot of flexibility and freedom uh, within their private sector, but they also have this very strong safety net. Um, and what it basically means is that if there's any homelessness there, um, if there's anybody who is unemployed or unemployable, uh, it, there are these, the systems sort of, whoosh, it's like, you know, that what, like one of those, um, like one of those machines in the matrix that just, whoosh, you know, gathers right on, it sort of attacks the problem systemically. 
And, and it's fascinating to watch, you know, just the safety net is so strong there. And one of the things that I, since you brought up diversity, Andrew, one of the things that I think that, you know, the thinking about, for example, UBI, the importance of the U in UBI is its universality. And so part of what I believe we've seen right now is that when, if you want to make interventions in a society, um, the more broadly and the more universal the benefits are, the less resentment it creates across lines of race, ethnicity, religion, and what have you. So a lot of the benefits in the Nordic countries are universally available. It's not like, oh, you have free childcare if you make below 50,000 euros a year. No, you get free childcare if you make below 50,000 or if you make over 5 million years a year, million years a year. So because the benefits are universal, there isn't this sort of resentment that's going, be, that's, that's going from one group of people to another. So, so I think, for example, when we think about UBI, part of what is compelling about UBI is the, is, is you. the you. It's the you. You know, it's not welfare. It's not a cash, it's not a cash payment just to the, the lowest income people because what that then does is it creates this really powerful political and cultural divide between the lowest income people and working class people, and middle class people, and upper middle class people. And these differences are keenly felt. So the, the, an example I'll point to is the universality of benefits within the Nordics, as opposed to means testing and individualizing everything. We in the United States, we have a highly individualized social contract. Um, and the degree, and because we've so hyper individualized things, we've really shredded um, a lot of the collective dimensions of our social contract. I think we've hyper-bureaucratized <laughs> things. Uh, and that's one of the problems where yep. it's punitive to wind mm -hmm. up interacting with some of these uh, programs and, and they're constantly checking up on you. And I, I've talked to hundreds of Americans who live in fear of something getting taken away from them because they screw something up. Um, and that's that's almost deliberate. You note that in your book too, where um, you quote someone talking about the relative incoherence of a lot of the uh, American uh, policy approaches. No, it's a, look, it's a it's a complete mess. It's a it's a when you have this part of the byproduct of individualization means you need hundred you need dozens and hundreds and thousands of people to regulate and bureaucratize the administrations of these programs, as opposed to, as you were saying earlier, Andrew, like pushing a button and sending a check. Um, you know, we need to become, I, our government needs to become more one button. It needs to be more, it, we need to take the friction out of most of our interactions with government. Amen. Mm -hmm. You and I are going to help make that happen. So what are you most excited about, Alec? Your book, I was trying to characterize it as optimistic or pessimistic, you're clearly a very optimistic fellow. Anyone listening to this no. can tell. Um, yeah, your book paints, I thought, a relatively uh, accurate picture of some of the problems. If, if there was an issue I have with your book, it's almost that you imagine that there has been a social contract <laughs> that, yeah. that, that we're stretching. Yeah. <laughs> That's part of me. I was like... Uh, we haven't had one for a minute or two, though. Yeah. Because it, it, it's true in the seventies. I mean, it, it 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 existed empirically to a higher degree. Uh, so, but let's let's close. It's a great book. Um, Thank please you. Please do pick it up uh, if you're listening to this. 
um, because you'll learn a lot. But uh, what are you most excited about, Alec? And whatever comes next, like I, I would love to work with you uh, side by side because you're a real force for progress. But what are you most excited about? Thank you. Well, look, I'm most excited about this generation of like 20-something, 20-somethings and 30-somethings who have sort of activated, who's, uh, who they're now part of the solutions, right? Like, and a lot of them are Yang Gang. Like a lot of them are people who you got into the political process. So what I'm excited about is we've been relying on generations of people and, and sort of a roving cast of characters um, for a long time now. I mean, if you like, let's be, this isn't about Democrats and Republicans. Like, I think we can be really critical of Democrats. I mean, if you look at the, at the Senate and House leadership in Congress, I mean, in the House, I don't think there's anybody below the age of 75 um, in the top ranks of leadership. And I think that that has not served us well. Um, I am most excited about these 20 somethings and 30 somethings. And as time passes, their power is going to grow. That's what excites me. Well, that is very optimistic, Alec. I'm, I'm with you on uh, different generations stepping up in different ways. Uh, I'm with you certainly in that we could use a cultural transformation uh, in government that's less based on seniority. Uh, and I'm happy to say that these are some things that I'm going to be working on. And uh, hopefully, again, you and I will have a chance to work together on it. Congratulations on a great achievement with your book, The Raging Twenties. What comes next for you, aside from you're going to be going on a book tour or whatnot? Um, you know, I know at, at this point you, you're um, working on a number of things in the private sector. You're a professor. You've got a growing family. But like, do you have a sense uh, uh, as to what comes next? No. Um, my eyes are wide open. You know, writing this crazy book was sort of, you know, it's like, it's, I won't say it's like giving birth because that will offend every woman who's watching and it probably should. Um, but what I will say is it's a difficult and process that takes a lot of time. So look, I, I, I'm just going to try to bring a, like, as I was saying, bring a little punk rock into the policy process, try to try to shake things up a little bit and do so through, look, I have limited skills. There are three things I feel like I can play in. Ideas, doing that with a book, governance, you know, we'll see if I engage uh, back there again, and entrepreneurship. So those are the three things I sort of move between those three worlds. So it reminds me a little bit of you. All three of them need you is what I was saying. Okay, congrats, Alec. And uh, hopefully, uh, this book will move a lot of hearts and minds, and we'll get some younger people engaged so they can take over and hopefully save us all. <laughs> Listen, thank you, Andrew. And thank you for everybody who's watching in. 